that called themselves the Liberators. Some of these same men, years before, were quite happy to have Caesar rise to power and bring order into a very chaotic civil situation that they were enduring at that time. But once he was declared dictator for life, by the Roman Senate, by the way, in their eyes, Caesar had become too powerful. Of course, what they meant by that was that they saw their own power being diminished. That's what they meant by him becoming too powerful. Looking back at the event of Caesar's assassination, historians are fascinated by the fact that subconsciously Caesar seemed to see it coming. For most of the month before his death, as Caesar would go to the Roman Senate each morning by carriage, there was a sage that would meet him on the way and would holler out to him, knowing who he was, would holler out to him, beware of the Ides of March. The Ides of March, by the way, is, is the middle of March, the 15th of March. On the night before the assassination, Caesar attended a dinner party where one person brought up a subject for discussion. And the discussion question was, how do you want to die? And when it came to Caesar, he answered it very simply, quickly, ironic. The next morning, Caesar's wife begged him not to go to the Roman Senate that day. She just had a bad feeling that something wasn't right. So after Caesar did what we all did, he, he promised his wife he would listen to her and that he would, he would just stay and call the Senate to order and he would leave immediately and come on back home. On the way to the Senate that morning from his home, he passed that same sage on the road. And the sage again said, beware the Ides of March. So this time Caesar had his carriage pulled over and he got out and he talked to the man. And he said, you know, you've been telling me, beware of the Ides of March. He said, well, listen, the Ides of March have come, and I'm still here. And the sage said, well, the Ides have come, but they haven't gone. Another ironic issue with regard to his assassination. What he didn't know was that that very same moment, his close friend and lieutenant, chief lieutenant, Mark Anthony, was being detained at his home by one of the conspirators who had gone there to question him about some mundane affairs, but to delay his arrival at the Roman Senate. Apparently, the 60 senators that assassinated Caesar thought that they could handle 60 on one, but they didn't think they could handle 60 on two. If Mark Anthony was there, they were afraid to go through with the plot. You know what? They were probably right to be afraid. Because Caesar and Anthony both were very veteran warriors. They were powerful, powerful men. And had Mark Anthony been there that day and been able to come to Caesar's aid, it is very possible that they would have been able to fight off the Roman senators because very few, if any of them, were warriors. They were politicians. But that wasn't to be. After arriving at the Senate, it looks as though Caesar had every intention of fulfilling the promise that he made to his wife. He got up, called the Senate to order, and the moment he called the Senate to order, then the senators, 60 of them, sprang upon him. Witnesses reported that Caesar very valiantly fought them off. And those who did the autopsy afterwards, the medical people in Rome at the time, 
reported that none of the blows in and of themselves would have been enough to cause death, but the accumulation of, of many, many blows caused it. In fact, they were, they were swinging at him so wildly that many of the assassins were injured. None of them died, but many of them were injured from their own blows. But when a man named Brutus stabbed Caesar uh, reportedly in the groin, Caesar immediately quit fighting. And he covered himself up with his cloak and went down, and the senators finished him off. Shakespeare later wrote in one of his plays that the final words of Caesar were, et tu, Brute, or et tu, Brute, meaning, and you, Brutus. He felt betrayed by this man. But the Roman historian Suetonius, quoting sources that were much, much closer to the time than Shakespeare used, said that Caesar's final words were actually spoken in Greek, which is not that odd because Caesar was fluent in Greek and often switched from Greek to Latin. But according to Suetonius, the Roman historian, writing fairly close to the time of the assassination, uh, Caesar's final words weren't et tu brute, they were kaisu technon, which is uh, just loosely translated, and you my child, or you my son. It's been long rumored that Brutus was Julius Caesar's illegitimate son, hence his phraseology at, at, at the end. But given that Caesar was only 15 years old when Brutus was born, it may actually not have been the case. It, it may just be more rumor than anything else. But one thing that we do know is that Caesar and Brutus always had a very close relationship. And we also know that Caesar as he was with many women in Rome at the time. He was very, very close to Brutus's mother. So you can, historians understand why these rumors might have been, been popular in Rome at the time. A few years before the assassination, Brutus, who whether he was the illegitimate son of Caesar or not, was his almost adopted son, if you will, not formally, but for all practical purposes, someone who's very close to him. Brutus chose sides against Caesar in the Roman Civil War and chose the side of Pompey, General Pompey. Well, you, can, you know that that's the wrong side, but one of the things that's interesting about history, and you're going to see that this is a bit ironic, before Caesar sent his troops out to go up against Brutus, he told his generals not to hurt the young man. Either arrest him if he doesn't resist you, or if he resists you, let him go. Doesn't that sound familiar. The difference is Caesar's men obeyed the order, and so Brutus wasn't hurt. Caesar, of course, won the Civil War with Cassius and with Pompey, and Brutus was immediately restored. He was, Caesar immediately forgave him and immediately restored him to his fellowship, back into his inner circle. Brutus actually later fought against Mark Anthony in the Battle of Philippi in 42 B.C., which we studied when we studied the letter to the Philippians. One of the reasons why the Philippians had citizenship in Rome was because of the way they treated Mark Anthony's forces at that time. And then shortly after that battle, Brutus being on the losing side again, chose the wrong side again. He committed suicide not too long after that. But back to Caesar. What a, what a betrayal he must have felt in those final moments of his life when he sees someone who was a trusted friend maybe even a trusted son, if we put that in quotation marks, 
deliver a blow right to his groin, to be among the conspirators. What a betrayal he must have felt to see Brutus rush the platform with all of those other senators. Betrayal is tough. You know, you can't really be betrayed by someone that you don't love or that you're someone you don't trust or someone you don't really consider a friend. You can be treated poorly by those people, but we wouldn't use the term betrayal. It takes somebody that's close to us to betray us, someone that we trust, someone that we would never expect to turn on us. Otherwise, we'd call it something different. When you are betrayed by someone that's a supposed friend, it's some, something that's very difficult to swallow. Betrayal is fairly common, too. That's why Psalm 55 is a favorite for many people among the Psalms. Because many, many people, including, I would say, three-quarters, seven-eighths of the people in this room that I'm speaking to tonight, and I'm sure most of the people that are, will hear this later, have been betrayed at some time in their life by either a friend or co-worker or perhaps a boss that they thought a lot of, or heaven forbid, a wife or a husband betrayed the trust of that spouse. And those of you that have know that it's an extremely painful ordeal to endure. Old Testament scholars can't determine with any certainty exactly when Psalm 55 was written. But it certainly appears as though it's a psalm of David that was occasioned by some betrayal in his life. So it's possible, if not probable, that this psalm was written sometime during the Absalom Rebellion, or perhaps right after the Absalom Rebellion, in retrospection about what happened during the Absalom Rebellion. And the two main probabilities for who the referent is here, to the one that's betraying David, are Absalom himself, his own son, and perhaps Ahithophel, who used to be David's trusted counselor, who turned on him. And remember how David was just struck down when he found out that Ahithophel was among the conspirators. So those are the two that Old Testament scholars look to for the likely reference that David is referring to in this psalm. In this psalm, too, we have some striking parallels between David and his life and Jeremiah, who will come after David, and what he experienced. Like David, Jeremiah's heart moaned. It groaned. Like David, Jeremiah imagined how nice it would be to just escape the whole mess and go out into the wilderness and lodge there. Like David, Jeremiah hears the people talking of peace when there really isn't any peace. Others have seen parallels with something that happened about a thousand years later with Judas, his friend, betraying our Lord Jesus with a kiss, the mark of friendship. He used the mark of friendship, the mark of love, to betray our master and his own. So in Psalm 55, verses 1 through 8, are a plea to God from David that God might listen to him in this time of intense distress. And as I read these words, these first eight verses in Psalm 55, I want you to listen carefully to how much distress David is in. And remember, this is a tough guy. This is the same guy that stared down Goliath. This is the same guy that went out and got, in order to get his wife, got an innumerable amount of Philistine foreskins. And we joked about that at the time. They don't give those up without some sort of fight. You know, 
I, I just say that. I say that to remind you that this is a tough guy. But look what betrayal does to him. Look what it did to his soul. And I would propose to you that pain of the soul is so much more painful than pain of the body. That that's why this psalm was written, to help us handle the pain of the soul that we get from betrayal. And again, I would say, I would dare say, most and probably all of us in this room have felt betrayed at one time or another. How do we handle it? Well, the first thing we do is we pour our heart out to God in our time of distress. Psalm 55 verse 1 reads, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide thyself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I am surely distracted. That word complaint in verse 2 could also be and probably should be translated lament. I am restless in my lament or in my tears, and I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away and would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. David, as he writes this, is in intense pain of the soul. And he is literally begging God to hear his prayer and to act on his behalf. If you've ever been betrayed, you know what David meant when he says things like, in verse 4, my heart is in anguish before me. The way Jeremiah put it, it's a parallel phrase, my heart groans, my heart aches. We have a phrase that's come down into English, I have a broken heart. And that's not a light thing. Those of you that have had broken hearts, you know what's meant by that phrase. And you know what David means in verse 4 when he says, my heart is in anguish within me. And then in verse 5, horror has overwhelmed me. Again, this is a guy that's not scared of very much. But this betrayal has taken him down emotionally. I love what he does. Verse 7 reminds me of that Southwest Airlines commercial series, We Want to Get Away. Remember that? You, know, you have these very embarrassing things that happen to somebody, and then all of a sudden the, the screen comes up and says, Want to Get Away, and then they give the airline fares. Well, that's kind of humorous, but this is not. And both David and Jeremiah had this same attitude. You probably had it too. I have to admit to you, I've had it too. Thinking, you know what? There's so much pain and trouble here. If I could just get away. If I could just go to Montana, if I could just take the road that goes north through Canada and keep going till the road stops, I'm sure it's going to be better way up there, so far away from all this. Now, we all know that's not true because we carry the heartache with us, don't we? You can't ever escape the heartache. But that's what David wants to do. He said, oh, I wish I had wings like a dove, and I could just fly away from here, and I could go out into the desert, and I could, I could find a lodging there. And I would escape from all of this. The problem is, for David and for Jeremiah and for us too, escapism is not a solution to the problem. 
Because wherever we go, the problem's going to follow us. If the problem is up here and in our chest, in our heart, it doesn't matter how far away you go. You have to deal with it where you are. So escapism doesn't work. It, did, it didn't work for Jeremiah. It doesn't work for David. And it won't, won't work for us. Interesting where the, where the parallels stop, though, when it comes to Jesus. Jesus never wanted to fly away. In fact, when Peter asked him to, you know, let's fight, let's get away, let's do whatever we can to not go to the cross. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. I came for this. This is why I was born, and now you want me to run away from it? So Jesus is the exception, because Jesus knew escapism wasn't the answer. And actually, he marched boldly to the cross. In fact, most scholars that study the Gospel of Luke realize that from Luke chapter 9 on, middle part of Luke chapter 9 on, he boldly was making his way back to Jerusalem in order to be crucified. So there is that one difference, I see. Actually, there are a few, but that's certainly one between David, Jeremiah, David, not David, Jeremiah, but David and Jeremiah, <laughs> David and Jeremiah and, and our Lord. Because while the, the first two who are incredibly mature Christians are mature believers, righteous people in the Old Testament sense, they still wanted to escape, and it just doesn't work that way. In verses 9 through 15, these verses serve as both a plea and a protest. Read these verses along with me, if you would. This is what David is actually asking God to do to these enemies. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around, they go around her upon the walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not part, depart from her streets. Then in verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. That it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And then he says, let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol. For evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. David's moved from a plea for God to listen to a plea to God to act against these people. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that this is an imprecatory prayer and we can pray that, that, that same thing, hear me out. Don't turn, don't turn me off just right now. At least listen to the end. Then you decide if you want to pray this specific prayer against people that have betrayed you. In case you're, you're falling asleep right now, don't do it. I'll just tell you that. Get the tape later. Listen to the rest of it. Don't do that. But we'll see exactly what David is doing here. And it's, it's not quite as harsh as it might look on the surface. We see in this paragraph that what happened to David was unexpected. If it was... And, and it probably was. But if it was the Absalom Revolution, or if it was the Absalom Revolution and Ahithophel's defection, his betrayal, this certainly appears to take him by surprise. But then don't most betrayals? We're shocked that somebody that we love, or somebody that we like a lot, or somebody that we trust would betray us. The reason I say that is because if we didn't trust them a lot, then we would kind of expect them to betray us. 
and it wouldn't be the same thing. But David is shocked here. It's unexpected. It's not just an uprising against him, but a betrayal by someone close to him. Again, that's why most Old Testament scholars think it was either Absalom or Ahithophel that's being referenced here. But whoever it was, was someone with whom David had at one time enjoyed close communion. But whoever it refers to, whether it was Absalom, Ahithophel, or somebody else that we don't know about, it does come as a shock to David. When we get to verse 15, and he said, Let death come deceitfully upon them. It is softened just a little bit in that the word probably could be understood, let desolation come upon them. But what David's really praying for is their defeat. He's not being vindictive here because if they are defeated, it means he wins. So he's just taking the negative side of the equation. He wants to win. He wants to survive this. And in the Absalom revolution, remember, they were out to kill him. Absalom was out to kill his father. And Ahithophel was giving Absalom counsel as to how to kill his father. So this is not a small thing. This is a life or death struggle. So David wants to be victorious. And if he's victorious, then the other side can't be. So I think that's why he, in verse 15, it sounds a bit harsh. And by the way, some of your Bibles may actually translate it that way. Let desolation come deceitfully upon him. Remember Hushai the Archite, who was sent back by David, or by God, through David, to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. And we studied the whole, whole consistence of ethics at the time, graded absolutism and all those technical terms. But Ahithophel was deceived by someone who was a greater deceiver. And Hushai outsmarted him. And he used deception to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. So I think that's what verse 15 is probably referring to. And again, with these psalms, we can't ever be sure because we don't know exactly the situation it was, it was going through. But if it was the Absalom Revolution, then this verse may be referring to Hushai the Archite frustrating the counsel of Ahithophel. But let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is their dwelling, is in their dwelling, in their midst. He wants their defeat. That's the prayer. So if you choose to pray this, you need to pray something like, Lord, let the enemies of be defeated. You fill in your own blank. And I think that's okay. Just so long as you remember both the Old Testament mandate and the New Testament mandate, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So you still have to turn it over to God, and that's going to be made abundantly clear as we get down to verse 22. Verses 16 through 23 alternate between hope and response. Remember, biblically, Hope is a confident expectation of a positive outcome. Verse 16, for example, is going to express hope. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Now, that's hope. That's confident expectation. That's not like the way we use hope. Are the Texans going to do well next year? Well, I hope so. Are the Astros going to do well? I hope so. Is it going to rain next week? Well, I hope so. But David doesn't say that. As for me, I will call upon the Lord, which is another way of saying I'm going to place my faith in him. I'm going, to, I'm going to put it all in his court, and the Lord will save me. He will rescue me. This is one of those places that we've referenced before. In the Old Testament, only 7% of the time when this term save is used, either verb or noun form, only 7% of the time is it used 
to reference a deliverance from a position of eternal condemnation into eternal life. In the New Testament, the tables are turned. Almost always it's that way. But in the Old Testament, it's not. In the Old Testament, it's referenced usually something like this. So the Lord saving him doesn't have anything to do with his eternal life. David already has that. This is decades after he fought Goliath. He's asking for a rescue from a position where he's in physical danger, and not just that, where his heart is broken because he's been betrayed by some close associate or family member into a position where he's not into physical danger anymore, and his heart has healed. That's what he really wants. So when he says, I'm going to call upon the Lord, and he'll save me, this is not in the context of a rescue from eternal condemnation into eternal life. We, get, we have to be careful with our context. And that's not the context of this psalm. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur. Now, this is not talking about griping to God. This is talking about intense supplication. And he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For there are many who strive with me. You see, from, he goes from petition to hope, or alternating between hope and response. God will hear and answer them. That's the response. Even the one who sits enthroned from old, Selah, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. Now, this is a little cumbersome. In my Bible, I have got an arrow drawn from the word them in the first phrase of verse 19 down to this last phrase, and who do not fear God. The first phrase is talking about God himself, but this, the second phrase is talking about those who are uprising against David. Then in verse 20, he, again, this is the enemy, has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was at war. You know people like that? You know anybody like that? Call them smooth-talking devils. And you got to watch out. I'd much rather have somebody just be honest with me than to smooth talk me or to say some, one thing in, to your face and another thing behind your back. C.S. Lewis once quipped that if we really knew what people said behind our backs, we probably would have no more than four friends in life. <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. But these, these people who, who their verbiage, their words was just really smooth. But inside, there was hatred for David. And again, you can see how Old Testament scholars would say both Absalom and Ahithophel fit that bill. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. A drawn sword is dangerous. A drawn sword can kill. By the way, you know that old phrase that you teach your children, or your grandkids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know that's not true. It's not true at all. Words may not can do you physical harm, but the words that we say to other people can do far more damage and far more lasting damage than any blow from a fist. A harsh word can be remembered by an individual almost for the rest of their life. So just be real careful with the things that we say. Remember our lesson from James's letter. Biblically, hope is a confident expectation of a positive outcome. David has hope here. He's got confidence that the Lord is going to save him. And he's confident that God will not act just against those who disregard him, 
who have insulted him. But ultimately, David wants God to act against those who have insulted God. Now, that's pretty bold on his part. I'm not sure we can always say that. I'm a little nervous about saying that sometimes. You know, they, they talk about that in sports. Some people get, especially the guys I listen to on the morning sports talk shows, who most of them who are unbelievers, they get all bent out of shape when Christians pray for a victory. You know, how do you know there's not, God doesn't love people on both sides? Well, that's probably true. I still, when my boys were playing and when I played, I still prayed for victory. You know, if they could just set it aside on the other side for a while. But David seems to know. And the reason that he knows is because he knows he's the Lord's anointed. And he knows that Absalom's not. So he's got to know that the Lord's on his side. So he's pretty bold. Well, perhaps the most well-known verse of this psalm is verse 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He'll never allow the righteous to be shaken. This verse could be understood literally. Throw Onto Yahweh what he has given to you. Throw onto Yahweh what he has given to you. Often people throw things our way that at least on the surface appear to be completely undeserved on our part. Sometimes they may throw things our way that are deserved, but they don't know that they're deserved. So they don't get any credit for that. For example, Absalom. It certainly seems like he was participating in God's discipline against David, but I don't think Absalom had that on his mind at all. Absalom was this egomaniac, and he wanted to take over the kingdom. And he was mad at his father for the perceived slights that, that David had given him. But the whole point of this verse, when, especially when it says, throw unto Yahweh what he's given to you, is that nothing gets to you or to me that has not passed through God's fingers first. Please note this well. This does not excuse the evil that is perpetrated by sinful people. It doesn't make what they did okay just because God allowed it to happen. Don't make that mistake. They'll get theirs, and God's going to do it. But it does tell us that when all is said and done, the suffering that comes our way is ultimately between us and God, between the individual and and God. Throw onto Yahweh what he's given to you. Or cast upon Yahweh, put it back on him, what he has allowed to come your way. It is not to excuse the behavior of evil people. Please don't use it that way. Nor is it to blame sin on God. Not at all. But it is to say that if God allowed it to happen to you, he's also going to be there to get you through the trouble that he allowed to come your way. He'll never allow the righteous to be shaken, or he'll never allow the righteous person to fall down. Some people translate it to be utterly cast down. The verb there may refer to either faltering with respect to one's own faithfulness, or more likely faltering by succumbing to the attack of the unrighteous. This is not so much a guarantee of victory as we might define victory. But it's a promise that when all the accounts are settled, it's going to work out for the righteous one. So it's up to us to be that righteous one, not just positionally, but experientially. This verse reinforces the idea that God will work all things together for good, as Paul will later put it in the New Testament. But thou, O God, 
will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and of deceit will not live out half of their days. They're going to get theirs. But how does David conclude this psalm? But I will trust in thee. They can do what they want to. And in fact, most of the time, you can't do anything about people betraying you. It's beyond your control. But what can you control? Well, to quote from a man who was not a Christian, who, as far as I know, died an unbeliever, Victor Frankl, who was a victim of the Holocaust. His whole family died. But he survived Auschwitz. And after Auschwitz, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And the most famous line in that book, Man's Search for Meaning, the last of the human freedoms is the right to choose one's attitude in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And you know what? That's not a bad summary of this chapter. David couldn't control what Ahithophel did. Turns out he couldn't control what Absalom did either. But he knew in whom he had believed. He knew his Lord. And whatever they did, David knew that ultimately they were going to get theirs. But he's going to place his confidence in the Lord. He's going to cast his burden upon the Lord. He's going to give back to God what God had allowed to come to him. He understood that the Lord would sustain him. He understood that the Lord would not allow him to be utterly cast down. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have our bad days. It's not a promise against people betraying us. But it is a promise that if you'll stay on God's side, just like the Apostle Paul said, that he does work all things out together for good. There are several implications to this psalm, and I close with this. We are expected by our Lord to throw upon him what others throw upon us, to cast it back upon him. He wants us to. He's strong enough for it. We're also expected by God to be transparent with him in our despair. Did you notice that? David doesn't hold anything back. He talks about his heart that's groaning and his heart that is in anguish within him. It also tells us that changing physical locations will seldom be the answer to pain of the soul. It also tells us it's okay to grieve before God at the way that others treat us sometimes. But we're to leave retribution in God's hands. And finally, we're to trust God to have our best interests. 